The Life, Crime, and Capture of John Wilkes Booth by George Alfred Townsend. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Letter three The Murderer Washington, April twenty seventh. Part two. It was close upon the beginning of the war when Booth resolved to transform himself from a stock actor to a star. As many will read this who do not understand such distinctions, let me preface it by explaining that a star is an actor who belongs to no one theatre, but travels from each to all, playing a few weeks at a time, and sustained in his chief character by the regular or stock actors. A stock actor is a good actor, and a poor fool. A star is an advertisement in tights who grows rich and corrupts the public taste. Booth was a star, and being so had an agent. The agent is a trumpeter who goes on before, writing the impartial notices which you see in the editorial columns of country papers and counting noses at the theatre doors. Booth's agent was one Matthew Canning, an exploded Philadelphia lawyer who took to managing by passing the bar. And J. Wilkes no longer, but our country's rising tragedian J. Wilkes Booth, opened in Montgomery, Alabama, in his father's consecrated part of Richard III. It was very different work between receiving eight dollars a week and getting half the gross proceeds of every performance. Booth kept northward when his engagement was done, playing in many cities such parts as Romeo, the Corsican Brothers, and Raphael in the Marble Heart. In all of these he gained applause, and his journey eastward ending in eastern cities like Providence, Portland, and Boston was a long success, in part deserved. In Boston he received a special commendation for his enactment of Richard. I have looked over this play, his best and favorite one, to see how closely the career of the crookback he so often delineated resembled his own. How like that fearful night of Richard on Bosworth Field must have been Booth's sleep in the barn at Port Royal, tortured by ghosts of victims all repeating. When I was mortal, my anointed body by thee was punched full of deadly holes. Think on the tower and me, despair and die. Or this, from some of Booth's female victims, Let me sit heavy on thy soul to-morrow. I that was washed to death with fulsome wine, Poor Clarence, by thy guile betrayed to death, To-morrow in the battle think on me, despair and die. These terrible conjurations must have recalled how aptly the scene as often rehearsed by Booth, sword in hand, where, leaping from his bed, he cries in horror, Give me another horse, bind up my wounds, have mercy, Jesu. Soft, I did but dream. O oh, coward conscience, how thou dost afflict me. The lights burn blue. It is now dead midnight. Cold, flareful drops stand on my trembling flesh. What do I fear? Myself, there is none else by. Is there a murderer here? No. Yes, I am. Then fly. What? From myself? My conscience hath a thousand several tongues, and every tongue bears in a several tale, and every tale condemns me for a villain. Perjury, 
perjury in the highest degree murder stern murder in the direst degree all several sins all used in each degree throng to the bar crying all guilty guilty by these starring engagements booth made incredible sums his cash book for one single season showed earnings deposited in bank of twenty-two odd thousand dollars in new york he did not get a hearing except at a benefit or two where he played parts not of his selection in philadelphia his earlier failure predisposed the people to discard him and they did but he had made enough and resolved to invest his winnings the oil fever had just begun he hired an agent sent him to the western districts and gave him discretionary power his investments all turned out profitable booth died as far as understood without debts the day before the murder he paid an old friend a hundred dollars which he had borrowed two days previously he banked at j cook's in washington generally but turned most of his funds into stock and other matters he gave eighty dollars eight months ago for a part investing with others in a piece of western oil land the certificate for this land he gave to his sister just before he died his agent informed him that the share was worth fifteen thousand dollars booth kept his accounts latterly with great regularity and was lavish as ever but took note of all expenditures however irregular he was one of those men whom the possession of money seems to have energized his life so purposeless long before grew by good fortune to a strict computation with the world yet what availed so sudden reformation and of what use was the gaining of wealth to throw one's life so soon away and leap from competence to hunted infamy the beauty of this man and his easy confidentiality not familiar but marked by a mild and even dignity made many women impassioned of him he was licentious as men and particularly as actors go but not a seducer so far as i can learn i have traced one case in philadelphia where a young girl who had seen him on the stage became enamored of him she sent him bouquets notes photographs and all the accessories of an intrigue booth to whom such things were common yielded to the girl's importunities at last and gave her an interview he was surprised to find that so bold a correspondent was so young so fresh and so beautiful he told her therefore in pity the consequences of pursuing him that he entertained no affection for her though a sufficient desire and that he was a man of the world to whom all women grew fulsome in their turn go home he said and beware of actors they are to be seen not to be known the girl yet more infatuated persisted booth who had no real virtue except by scintillations became what he had promised and one more soul went to the isles of cyprus in montgomery if i do not mistake booth met the woman from whom he received a stab which he carried all the rest of his days she was an actress and he visited her they assumed a relation creditable only in la bohème and were as tender as love without esteem can ever be but after a time booth wearied of her and offered to say good-bye she refused he treated her coldly she pleaded he passed her by then with a jealous woman's frenzy she drew a knife upon him and stabbed him in the neck with the intent to kill him being muscular he quickly disarmed her 
though he afterwards suffered from the wound poignantly. Does it not bring a blush to our faces that a good, great man, like he who has died, our president, should have met his fate from one so inured to a life of ribaldry? Yet only such a one could have been found to murder Abraham Lincoln. The women persecuted Booth more than he followed them. He was waylaid by married women in every provincial town or city where he played. His face was so youthful yet so manly, and his movements so graceful and excellent, that other than the coarse and errant placed themselves in his way. After his celebrated Boston engagement, women of all ages and degrees pressed in crowds before the Tremont House to see him depart. Their motives were various, but whether curiosity or worse, exhibiting plainly the deep influence which Booth had upon the sex. He could be anywhere easy and gentlemanly, and it is a matter of wonder that with the entry which he had to many well-stocked homes, he did not make hospitality mourn and friendship find in his visit shame and ruin. I have not space to go into the millionth catalogue of Booth's intrigues, even if this journal permitted further elucidation of so banned a subject. Most of his adherents of this class were like Heine's Polish virgins, and he was very popular with those dramatic ladies, few, I hope and know, in their profession, to whom divorce courts are superfluous. His last permanent acquaintance was one Ella Turner, of Richmond, who loved him with all the impetuosity of that love which does not think, and strove to die at the tidings of his crime and fight. Happy that even such a woman did not die associated with John Wilkes Booth. Such devotion to any other murderer would have earned some poet's tear, but the daisies will not grow a whole rod from his grave. Of what avail may we ask on the impossible supposition that Booth's crime could have been considered heroic, was it that such a record could have dared to die for fame? Victory would not have been ashamed of its champion as England of Nelson and France of Mirabeau. I may add to this record that he had not been in Philadelphia a year on first setting out in life before getting into a transaction of the kind specified. For an affair at his boarding-house he was compelled to pay a considerable sum of money, and it happily occurred just as he was to quit the city. He had many quarrels and narrow escapes through his license. A husband in Syracuse, New York, once followed him all the way to Cleveland to avenge a domestic insult. Booth's paper, to whom it may concern, was not his only attempt at influential composition. He sometimes persuaded himself that he had literary ability, but his orthography and pronunciation were worse than his syntax. The paper deposited with J. S. Clark was useful as showing his power to entertain a deliberate purpose. It has one or two smart passages in it, as this. Our once bright red stripes look like bloody gashes on the face of heaven. In the passages following there is common sense and lunacy. I know how foolish I shall be deemed for undertaking such a step as this, where on the one side I have many friends and everything to make me happy, where my profession alone has gained me an income of more than twenty thousand dollars a year, and where my great personal ambition in my profession has such a great field for labor. On the other hand, the South have never bestowed upon me one kind word, a place now where I have no friends, except beneath the sod, a place where I must either become a private soldier or a beggar. 
to give up all of the former for the latter, besides my mother and sisters whom I love so dearly, although they so widely differ with me in opinion, seems insane, but God is my judge. Now read the beginning of the manifesto and see how prophetic were his words of his coming infamy. If he expected so much for capturing the president merely, what of our execration at slaying him? Right or wrong, God judge me, not man. For be my motive good or bad, of one thing I am sure, the lasting condemnation of the North. I love peace more than life, have loved the Union beyond expression. For four years I have waited, hoped, and prayed for the dark clouds to break, and for a restoration of our former sunshine. To wait longer would be a crime. All hope for peace is dead. My prayers have proved as idle as my hopes. God's will be done. I go to see and share the bitter end. To wait longer would be a crime. Oh, what was the crime not to wait? Had he only shared the bitter end, then in the common trench his memory might have been hidden. The end had come when he appeared to make a benignant victory a quenchless revenge. One more selection from his apostrophe will do. It suggests the manner of his death. They say that the South has found that last ditch which the North have so long derided. Should I reach her in safety and find it true, I will proudly beg permission to triumph or die in that same ditch by her side. The swamp near which he died may be called, without unseemly pun, a truth, not a bon mot, the last ditch of the rebellion. None of the printed pictures that I have seen do justice to Booth. Some of the carts de visite get him very nearly. He had one of the finest vital heads I have ever seen. In fact, he was one of the best exponents of vital beauty I have ever met. By this I refer to physical beauty in the Medician sense. Health, shapeliness, power in beautiful poise, and seemingly more power in repose than in energy. His hands and feet were sizable, not small, and his legs were stout and muscular, but inclined to bow like his father's. From the waist up he was a perfect man, his chest being full and broad, his shoulders gently sloping, and his arms as white as alabaster, but hard as marble. Over these, upon a neck which was its proper column, rose the cornice of a fine Doric face, spare at the jaws and not anywhere overripe, but seamed with a nose of Roman model, the only relic of his half-Jewish parentage, which gave decision to the thoughtfully stern sweep of two direct dark eyes, meaning to woman snare, and to man a search-warrant, while the lofty square forehead and square brows were crowned with a weight of curling jetty hair like a rich Corinthian capital. His profile was eagleish, and afar his countenance was haughty. He seemed throat-full of introspections, ambitious self-examinings, eye-strides into the future, as if it withheld him something to which he had a right. I have since wondered whether this moody demeanor did not come of a guilty spirit, but all the booths look so. Wilkes spoke to me in Washington for the first time three weeks before the murder. His address was winning as a girl's, rising in effect not from what he said, but from how he said it. It was magnetic, and I can describe it, therefore, by its effects alone. 
I seemed, when he had spoken, to lean toward this man. His attitude spoke to me, with as easy familiarity as I ever observed as he drew near and conversed. The talk was on so trite things that it did not lie a second in the head, but when I left him it was with the feeling that a most agreeable fellow had passed by. The next time the name of Wilkes Booth recurred to me was like the pistol shot he had fired. The right hand I had shaken murdered the father of our country. Booth was not graceful with his feet, although his ordinary walk was pleasant enough, but his arms were put to artistic uses, not the baser ones like boxing, but all sorts of fencing, manual practice, and the handling of weapons. In his dress he was neat without being particular. Almost any clothes could fit him, but he had nothing of the exquisite about him. His neckties and all such matters were good without being gaudy. Nature had done much for him. In this beautiful palace an outlaw had builded his fire and slept and plotted and dreamed. I have heard it said that Booth frequently cut his adversaries upon the stage in sheer wantonness or bloodthirstiness. This is a mistake, and is attributable to his father, the elder Booth, who had the madness of confounding himself with the character. Wilkes was too good a fencer to make ugly gashes. His pride was his skill, not his awkwardness. Once he was playing with John McCullough in the last act of Richard. They were fighting desperately. Suddenly the cross-piece on the hilt of McCullough's sword flew off and cut the owner deeply in the forehead. Blood ran down McCullough's face, though they continued to struggle, and while ostensibly Booth was imitating a demon, he said in a half-whisper, "'Good God, John, did I hurt you?' And when they went off the stage, Booth was white with fear that he had gashed his friend. As an actor, Booth was too energetic to be correct. His conception of Richard was vivid and original, one of the best that we have had, and he came nearer his father's rendering of the last act than anybody we have seen. His combat scene was terrific. The statement that his voice had failed has no valid foundation. It was as good when he challenged the cavalrymen to combat as in the best of his thespian successes. In all acting that required delicate characterization, refined conception, or carefulness, Booth was at sea but in strong physical parts, requiring fair reading and an abundance of spring and tension, he was much finer than hearsay would have us believe. His Romeo was described a short time ago by the Washington Intelligencer as the most satisfactory of all renderings of that fine character. He played the Corsican brothers three weeks on a run in Boston. He played Pescara at Ford's Theatre, his last mock part in this world, on tomorrow, Saturday night, six weeks ago. He was fond of learning and recited fugitive poems. His favorite piece was The Beautiful Snow, comparing it to a lost purity. He has been known by gentlemen in this city to recite this poem with fine effect, and cry all the while. This was on the principle of guilty people sitting at a play. His pocket-book was generally full of little selections picked up at random, and he had considerable delicacy of appreciation. On the morning of the murder, Booth breakfasted with Miss Carrie Bean, the daughter of a merchant and a very respectable young lady, at the National Hall. He arose from the table at, uh, say, eleven o'clock. During the breakfast, those who watched him say that he was lively, piquant, and self-possessed as ever in his life. That night the horrible crime thrilled the land. 
A period of crippled flight succeeded, living in swamps upon trembling hospitality, upon hopes which sank as he leaned upon them. Booth passed the nights in perilous rout or broken sleep, and in the end went down like a bravo, but in the eyes of all who read his history, commanding no respect for his valor, charity for his motive, or sympathy for his sin. The closing scenes of these terrible days are reserved for a second paper. Much matter that should have gone into this is retained for the present. End of Letter 3